Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Colin Quinn. You know, Colin holds a, a special place in my little comedy heart. Um, first, he's just he's so smart about comedy and how he talks about it and how it should be used and what makes good comedy, what makes non-interesting comedy. But more so, from 2002 to 2004, he, he hosted a show called Tough Crowd, in which he and, and um, a bunch of comedians who were performing at the Comedy Cellar, really, at the time, just talked about present-day issues. And it was just really seminal for me in terms of understanding how for me, in terms of understanding who comedians were, like beyond sort of the really, really famous people like Chris Rock, it made me understand like who club comedians were and, and sort of what the day to day was like and what the conversations were like. And, and it, it made me fascinated with the comedy seller at a young age um, to a point that eventually when I, I got a fake ID, I used it to go to the comedy seller. So Colin's out promoting his book, Overstated, which which is a roast of the 50 states, and Colin Quinn and Friends, a parking lot show, which premiered on HBO Max on November 12th. It's less a stand-up special than a, than a documentary about shooting a stand-up special. So Colin put together a, a lineup of some of his faves, old and new, uh, Sam J, Dan Soder, Keith Robinson, Robert Kelly, and, and had them perform for a field of cars in North Brooklyn. The twist is he demanded everyone do new material uh, about the pandemic. This unfinished style is in sharp contrast from the form Colin has been working in for the last 20 years or so, where he's been favoring sort of thoroughly scripted one-person shows about history. But but still, the, the, the special captures so much about what Colin represents as a comedian's comedian. He's just a friend of comedians. He's a comedian who cares about comedians. He likes to be around comedians. He likes to showcase comedians just like he has since Tough Crowd. But also, he does a thing that only comedians like or primarily comedians like. One comedian once said he, he, his material is like a dog whistle for comedians where they hear something that audiences just do not understand. And as a result, he, he bombs a lot. He loves bombing. A lot of this special is about one of the comedians who bombs. It's a very unique look into the stand-up show that you don't often get to see in normal TV specials that are usually so produced and so finished. Though, to his credit, as you'll hear, Colin had a pretty good, though a bit sloppy set. So here is Colin Quinn. Yeah, folks, I mean, what can I really say at this point, you know? I, uh, I, uh, you know, Corona, what do you, you know, you, it all started March, it's never gonna end. This is the end of society. This is the end of the world. You're gonna be living in those cars for the next 25 years. And started in March, don't touch your eyes, don't rub your face, 
Don't, you have to wash your hands constantly. Who's that at the uh, CDC? Everybody's mother? You know, folks, not everything's edgy. Sometimes a guy like me, in his later years, he likes to hit like a joke. That joke would have worked on Merv Griffin if they had coronavirus back then. I'm not denying it wasn't the wildest joke you ever heard, but you know, I like to open soft and work my way up. I, um, thank you. <laughs> my thing is this, I blame the coronavirus on nerds because before computers, all nerds did was work on medical things. Their whole life was looking through microscopes at slides. And then computers came along and suddenly nerds became popular and they didn't go into medical. Medical is like the third rung of intelligent people. And nerd culture was only supposed to work in hospitals, in medical situations. They were supposed to cure diseases. They're not supposed, they're not supposed to be bands with glasses. Mick Jagger didn't wear glasses. Bruce Springsteen didn't have a fucking pocket protector. Buddy Holly was the only guy in a band that wore glasses and God killed him pretty early because of <laughs> Big Bopper fan. Anyway, um, and uh, I'll tell you who's back being essential, lab rats. Lab rats, you didn't hear about them a lot because a lot of them got laid off because of the makeup scandals back in the early 90s. And now they're like, yeah, I got called in. I don't know, I was there. Yeah, I mean, I was sitting home and I, you know, I'm, I've been off for the past three months because I had a bad reaction to some kind of antidepressant, but they called me in because some asshole ate a fucking bat in China. I don't know. <laughs> All right, I didn't say my lab rat impression was the stuff of great. It wasn't a Richard Pryor character, you know? It's fucking lab rat, what do you want out of me? Um, I've been on stage six months. And um, at least Corona gives us an excuse if the apocalypse, if we die, I was so, it would be so humiliating to die in the apocalypse and then we go to heaven and people are like, what the fuck? And we're like, yeah, we just started arguing on social media and shit got out of control. At least this way we can go, no, fucking God decided to ground us for some reason. And he put this corona and that just set us off. At least we have an external reason instead of just people fighting all the time on social media. Because here's what I realized about social media, why it destroyed this country, is because we're not meant to be having these political intelligent discussions. We're not the intelligent country. We're like the enthusiastic, outdoorsy kind of country. Like England, France, they were like intellectual, political. We're not meant to be getting into these deep thoughts. You know what I mean? We're like salesmen and farmers. That's what we're good at. And we, you know, now look at us. You know what I mean? I feel like if this world, either we end apocalyptic or we get invaded by aliens, which everyone's always worried about that because they're like, aliens will come down and they'll be this superior, these genius people and they'll take us over and make us their slaves. Yeah, just as scary. What if they come and they're dumb? What if aliens show up and they just, they're fans of ours. And they just came down here because it was on their bucket list to visit Earth and they've been watching us on YouTube. And they're like eight years behind and they're saying like balls and awesome sauce. And like, hey, do shots, do duck lips. And we're like, holy fucking shit. So I get, thank you. Um, All right, you guys, thank you very much for coming out tonight. Thank you for staying for the show. Thank you. Thank you. I want a new hoodie. Thank you, guys. So I am here with Colin Quinn. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jesse. So uh, before we talk about the drive-in show and your process for that, I wanted to sort of contextualize it in terms of what your comedy was doing uh, in normal times. For, for a while now, your comedy has been built around creating these sort of history-focused one-man shows. And it seemed like before the pandemic, you were working on one called The Wrong Side of History. Um, in general, how, how did you come to doing those? What influenced you? Why did it make sense for what you're trying to do with your comedy? Well, because 
I started doing it in the 90s. I did this show about my family, Irish Wake, yeah. in the 90s. I started because I used to see these one-man shows like Eric Rigozian, Whoopi Goldberg had one. And they were all like, I was like, that's fun because you could do like other stuff and the crowd kind of has to listen, you know. <laughs> and in comedy clubs, it's there's always some lion taming that goes on, you know. Yeah. Whether it's positive or negative reinforcement, doesn't matter. It's substitute teaching sometimes where you're just like, everybody listen, quiet, late. And it's also the physical layout of clubs. I mean, I could go into a whole boring explanation of what I think it is, but, yeah. you know, but it, the, the long and the short of it was I wanted to do these shows that were thematic. So I worked them all out in clubs. Clubs keep comedians honest, you know? Yeah. I mean, the downside of clubs is they, you know, you have to a lot of times work lowest common denominator to keep the audience, to keep everybody in the crowd in, in, you know, focused. But mm -hmm. the upside is it keeps people honest because you, if you're not getting laughs, people are just like, what's going on here? You so know? when building those, would you start with the theme and write to that theme? Would you sort of start with nothing and just see what you were talking about? How, how did sort of the, the bones of a show like that get built? I started with the theme of like, you know, the first like long story short thing I did was I was like, Oh, I'm going to write about the world. Cause I was like, how does the world get to be the way it is? You know, how, how do people never change? You know, mm -hmm. humanity never changes. And almost all my shows, if I really had my, my own way, every show would be the same thing. Greeks, wrong. I mean, I'm always like, that's always my thing where I'm like, Oh, I want to learn more about that, but you know, go over the history of the world. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, so it all starts with that kind of stuff. It starts yeah. with the theme. Yeah. Where were you in the process on your most recent show when, when the pandemic hit? Well, I had two shows. Mm -hmm. I had one in every crowd, which I never which is really my life's work. <laughs> and then I had the wrong side of history, which is more or less, you know, kind of contemporary stuff, you know, just about how everybody thinks they're on the right side of history every time and nothing ever pans out. You know, things keep switching, you know. What can you tell me a little bit more about the life's work one? My I, life's I, work is called One in Every Crowd. And the fact that I even divert from it is disgraceful on my part. But but um it's basically about how any job you've ever been at, any school you've ever got attended, any team you were a part of, anytime you were in a crowd of anywhere from more than ten people to a hundred people there's at least one person that's a toxic person mm. that's trying to destroy and disrupt the entire thing. Mm -hmm. And how, and at your job, for example, any job you've had, there's one person that's like that, right? So <clears throat> when that person leaves or gets fired or just leaves, somebody else that wasn't that asshole becomes, rises up and becomes that person. So it's just a fascinating thing to me. Like they're obviously here for a reason, you know what I mean? And obviously there's, you know, parts of everybody in each of these things, but there's still that one person that's perennial, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so, um, you, 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 y'all shot the, the parking lot show in early September. Can you tell me what those first six months in the pandemic were like for you as a comedian? As you say in the special, we need to talk to strangers like you need to breathe. What, yeah. what, what, what was it like? I mean, for me, I was glad to get the break because I had to write this book anyway. And it was, so I had, I, it was good. I had no excuse to not yeah. write the book. Yeah. So it was good for me in that way. But, um, but then, you know, you do, it's so funny how comedians, I mean, now everybody, because of social media, yeah. but comedians need to constantly be out there talking to strangers. It is, it is, it's almost that simple. I mean, so it was very, I live downtown by right between City Hall and like Tribeca, I live. Mm -hmm. So it's really deserted. So there was nobody out and they closed the, my corner store, my grocery store in the corner closed. I used to talk to them. Mm -hmm. So it's been kind of a really strange time for me as far as interacting with people. Um, you, 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 you say in the, the special, this is not sustainable because we need this being the sort of driving shows is not sustainable because we need an audience more than any other performing art. You, you talked a little bit about keeping it honest, but can you, can you talk a little bit about what, how, um, there's something you said in your one night stand, which is like, uh, comedy is a collective art. So if I don't bomb, we bomb. Can you talk about <laughs> sort of, 
Can you talk about what that means? Like, what? How do you see it? What is that relationship? What is what is being created? First of all, thanks for that shout out to my deep cut. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, yeah, comedy is a. I mean, by the by the well, it's the only. I feel like it's the only art form where, as much as it drives me crazy to say it and admit it, we need the audience mm-hmm. as part of our process. We need yeah. them, like they help us edit, which is writing. So everybody else can go out and still do their thing. I, I think like musicians practice together, then they perform live. And I'm sure they get something, some development out of it. But for our development, without the audience, you will ramble for an hour and get like four jokes because you're like, no, this is funny. I know what I mean. You know, mm-hmm. performing standup is such a great humbling experience because you think I got this joke. I've been doing this for 30 years. <laughs> and then you go up there and you're like, oh, my God. How can I still not understand where a, where a punchline is missing? You know, yeah. so it's so without the crowd, it's not sustainable. It's going to be people rambling on social media or doing Zoom shows, and you can't tell if you're getting a laugh. It sounds like a bunch of muffled pigeons yeah, out yeah. your window, and so it's going to be a weird thing watching stand up develop that way. Yeah, you, so you could have done a variety of things possibly why why was this the show why this this special this drive-in documentary um well because i just had the idea like hey you want to do one of the like i'm always like if i could do that every week with different comedians i would do it mm-hmm. do like shows and try to show like how people are backstage and just i mean like i said in the show i mean obviously every podcast is certainly disgusting right <laughs> but i mean but but to try to get that energy of before the show. Cause I feel like comedians are never funnier than right before the show yeah. when everybody's getting ready and to go on and just, I just like that stuff. And, you know, certainly inside baseball comedy is not unpopular. So I figured, you know, <laughs> if, if it was ever a time people are going to allow this kind of uh, indulgence, it would be now, you know? Yeah. Uh, so for for your set, I want to talk a little bit about your set. How how did you approach it? Considering you you, you couldn't work out in, in the clubs, how do you sort of write jokes? I mean, I really was a little bit sloppier than I normally am dress wise, and also the fact that my t shirt was hanging out, which I didn't know. Thank nobody for telling me, and and uh, and material wise, because I wasn't planning on doing a set. Like I was like, oh, hey, I want to direct this. I don't want to do a set. And then like a week before they go, no, you're doing a set. I go, no, I just want to direct. They go, hey, we hired you. You got to do a set. And I was like, damn it. It makes sense, you know? (laughs) And so I had some thoughts, but in the grand scheme of things, I would have been a lot, uh, I would have been a lot more precise than I, I usually over, over prepare, you know? Yeah. And, um, but I felt, you know, I still felt good about, Hey, listen, I'm, you know, I'm downplaying it. But meanwhile, I'm like, no, that was funny. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of it was really good. I, 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 I will ask you about. I want to talk about the specific jokes, but if you, if you want to also mention how, if you were to do it again, the joke would be tighter. That's also, you know, like I want right. to know how you wrote it or how you thought about it, but how you probably would fix it would also be interesting for the people that listen to these yeah. shows. So um, there's the you do the joke about who's the head of the CDC, everybody's mother, which you then do the riff about Merv oh, yeah. Griffin. <laughs> So. Yeah, because it, it didn't get a laugh from every from the crowd. Not that you can tell when you're getting a laugh, but I just felt the weird energy. Maybe I was just, you know, self-conscious about my milk toast joke. But um, but I I really, you know, it's funny because you write certain jokes like that's a joke. That was one of the first jokes I wrote during after the pandemic, and I was like, that's really funny. <laughs> and then for some reason, when I get up and said it, I felt like you know self-conscious, like that's. That was because it is a very square joke. Yeah, but it's also square because it has everybody's mother in it. So it's you know, it's not my fault. The content is square. Everybody's mother's not some you know edgy leather yeah. clad you know punk uh, goddess. You know, so um, so that was the that was the first joke that was kind of you know, I was I still stand by it because you know every comedian I feel like stands by every joke in their act whether they yeah they, you know what I mean, but I mean um. Yeah, it made me feel insecure at that time, so I, so I bailed by you know apologizing after it. What do you like about being able to break the fourth wall, or just what do you think it offers? What your what your act is, or what you try to do? I don't think it offers that much, but I always did it because uh, in the early days I did it like it was almost like a tick, and mm-hmm. 
it was just, I would just like to riff. Well, it's partly because it's a nervous habit and it's partly because you want to, you want to live in the moment with the crowd, mm-hmm. even though they don't really care for that necessarily <laughs> most of the time, you know, but like, you want to be like, you, you know, you're trying to be like, all right, I don't want to just do my act either. I want to live with you people in the moment, mm-hmm. you know, without being, you know, whatever manufactured or just, you know, too, too, too organized. And, and so I would just do that all the time. And most of the time, even if I was on TV and people kind of knew me, it would bomb because people don't like whatever that style was. The comedians always loved it, but yeah. the audience didn't really care for it at that, you know, back in the nineties and eighties. Yeah, and, and so it's one of those things that I love doing still to this day, but I yeah. control, I pull myself back a lot, but I do like to riff more than, more than, yeah. you no. Know. So the, the next joke is that that you blame the nerds for the pandemic, yeah. um, which I feel like nerds. You've I feel like for the last decade you've been talking about nerds a lot and the shift in the coolness of nerds. Yes. Um, how what is your thinking behind nerds and bands with glasses? Um, and then you end with Buddy Holly was killed because he was the only guy with glasses. Killed by gods. Yeah. Killed by- well, I mean, nerds is just one of those things. That it's so funny the word nerd anyway, you know, yeah. when I was on Saturday night live, me and Horatio Sands used to argue about nerds. And one time I said, he goes to me, yeah, I go, you're, you're a nerd. You and Jimmy with you, Jimmy Fallon, or whatever they were into. I go, that's nerds. And he just looked at me and he goes, you're a mean nerd. <laughs> and I had to say it, it really hit me in a good space. I was like, yeah, that's a good one. And then years later, I, I had some teams to walk over on my set and go, hey, a mean nerd says hello. And he goes, Colin. So he remembered like 15 years later. But um, but uh, yeah, I mean, nerd culture in general has, uh, you know, has become a thing, obviously, where like hipsters are just nerds that aren't that smart. They're, mm-hmm. they're nerds that weren't good in school, you know, yeah. but they appropriated parts of nerd culture. I have all theory on But for me... You know, I like uh, I I like when nerds are all medical. Look to this day, nobody's figured out what Corona is. No one knows. No one knows anything, and and that's because nerds used to only focus on medicine. And yeah. once they got into computers, I mean, who wouldn't? If you have a new rock and roll thing where you're going to be culturally cool, why wouldn't? You, why would you stay in a lab? You know, all day antiseptic, stupid. You know. Yeah, that section I was, I was really in, there's. There's a part that really work, which is you do the Buddy Holly joke, someone beeps, and then you say Big Bopper fan. But in general, the, the sort of the rhythm and the I imagine the rhythm and timing of performing for cars and sort of spread out audiences is unusual. How, what was it like the performance of it? How, how did you adapt? Did you learn from watching the other people? What was that like? No, I mean, you can't, you know, that's one of those things where you just have to be up there and then you're like, oh, God. You know, because it always looks, even to us, it looks easier. Like stand-up, even talking about stand-up is so much more logical than when I do it. So when mm-hmm. you, you could, I could talk about stand-up all day. And then when I go in front of a crowd, it's like going into the ocean and a wave hits you when you're swimming, you know? It's just like, whoa, whoa, it just changes. So performing in front of the cars, I was like, I, I wanted to just hear like laughs, like on a Zoom thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And... But instead, they start honking after their favorite jokes. Yeah. And at one point, somebody honked during one of my jokes, and it annoyed me so much. I don't know if we left that part in. I can't remember. But I just, my face was like fuming because I felt like they were doing it sarcastically. So now you're (laughs) second guessing the cars and wondering what that honk is. It a, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like on New Year's Eve, they give people stupid, um, when you do comedy New Year's shows, they give them um, horns. And then there's always one idiot that has to blow the horn during your punchlines. And they didn't do it during my punchline, but I was, you know, I was jumping the gun in, in annoyance. And, um, but, uh, yeah, but it was, it's a, it's a weird thing because you changes the whole organ organism, you know, Mm -hmm. of comedy. The next joke you talk about America was not made for intelligent discourse, which I feel like combines two of your great interests, which is, America and the history of philosophical discussion. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that joke or just sort of what interests you about those, those topics I feel like you do come back to in, in, in different ways. 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, you're right. I'm definitely obsessed with that kind of stuff. Well, I feel like America, I feel like where our country was the young, fun, enthusiastic, mm. like all, like Europe was like, you'd go to England and it would be literature and Italy would be art and France would be like culture and wine and food and discussion and these people sitting chain smoking in some cafe, having some existential conversation on the left bank of Paris. And then America was not that. Yeah. That wasn't our thing. We didn't have the history. We didn't have the the point. Of, we didn't have that cynical attitude that you need to have a kind of intelligent, you know, fatalistic mm-hmm. attitude towards politics and towards everything. And somehow in the past 40 years, we decided, especially with technology, but we decided, hey, we want to participate in the political discussions. And everybody's weighing in all the time politically. But you can see, even in the political discussions this week, everybody's talking about the statistics. They don't really have insights, only insults and statistics. That's what we're good at because we're the jock country. You know what I mean? Um, so you end with the, the, the alien joke, which I, I really think that joke is wonderful. Oh, thanks. How did that come to you? What were you thinking? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I was trying to write the end of yeah. one side of history. So I was writing endings. So I said, oh, well, here's how the world could end. You know, apocalypse, uh, you know, just civil war, uh, disease, and then alien invasion. And then I just, I don't know how it came, but I was... I was happy as hell too when I came up with those. Oh, that's a good one. That they're just mediocre, like you know, they're just dumber than us, and kind of like fanboys who are just like trying to be, you know, saying things that people said like five years ago or seven years ago, like Amaze Balls and Awesome Sauce, and you know, just all that kind of just the depressing fact that we wanted to be this glamorous yeah. thing, you know, it's- where these aliens come and take us over and they're brilliant, and it's like sometimes things don't go that way. There, there's something about in in the special release you or in the HBO thing you say eight years and then Maze Balls and Awesome Sauce and it just felt so right, like that's the time when people said those words. Um, so talking about a little bit and also having been able to do a little bit from an audience is, do you, do you feel like any of these jokes you'd keep? Do you think of ways you could fix them? Or you know, like as you said, they're a little bit. Um, long or wordy in certain places do do you have ideas of how you change it how you'd improve any of these jokes sure but i mean you know the problem the problem for me anyway i won't speak for all comedians even though i do all the time um <laughs> is that i overwrite then so my solution is it just needs more jokes and then even if the jokes are decent when you perform it people are just like we're done you mm-hmm. said that joke in another form Move on. But you don't want to move on too fast unless you're like a one-liner person, which I don't like that. You know, like I like to fully, but again, you need the crowd to fully develop, but know that you've gone too deep into it. And now you're just doing variations on the same joke. Yeah. So, um, so can you walk me through the the production of how you actually made this and and shot it sort of, what were the surprises? What were the, the challenges and how do you address them? I, you know, I'm always just, I love, uh, comedians getting together and just like, you know, I always have this, uh, you know, I just love that banter. Like even when I watch movies, mm-hmm. I like those forties wisecracking Carol Lombard and Joan Blondell and, you know, the thin man. Like I like when people banter a little bit back yeah. and forth. I just, I love it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I really, uh, you know, so I wanted to get everybody together. that kind of knows you like it's better. The more people know each other, the better it is. For that mm-hmm. comfortability factor, you know, and these people all knew each other and I see them all the time. You know what I mean? So, so I was like, all right, let's get, let's get everybody together and do a set. And then I told everybody don't do old material. You mm-hmm. know, it has to be all like topical because nobody wants to see anyone's act at a thing like this. You know, like there's certain shows where you're like, don't do your act. Nobody's interested. Your act is for when you're doing an hour, but when yeah. you're doing a show in the middle of COVID, keep it relevant, you know? So everybody did, you know, after you know, I, I call everybody and said it too. And because, yeah. you know, they're nervous. Nobody's performed for months. They want to do stuff they're familiar with. Yeah. But then that ruins my idea of the show. The great thing that's happened to me, as far as I'm concerned, in the past 20 years in comedy, is there's all these people that are comedy literate. Because that mm-hmm. wasn't like that when I was around. Yeah. 
you know, in the 90s and even the early 2000s up until like, but it was a whole generation of, you know, your age and younger that had just, that grew up on comedy. So they understand more or less when they're yeah. seeing hack stuff, when they're seeing original stuff and when, you know, and what it, like a language or whatever it is. And it's just been, it's been the greatest thing in my opinion, you know? Yeah. So what is funny is, um, one of the stories the documentary ends up following is Chris Stefano bombing. Yeah. And everyone, and especially Chris, not stop talking about it. Chris, literally every time Chris is on camera, he's talking about how no one else is bombing or how he bombed and why he did and why he's making right. excuses. And I feel like you find bombing fascinating, more interesting than I think a lot of people do, more interesting than even people doing well on stage. What is it about bombing that interests you? Why And why is it an important part of comedy generally? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about that because, you know, it's, it, it is, I do, I do think it's, I do think it's, a, it, it's authentic in a way. I feel like it breaks down, like comedy is this naked art where you have these real moments, right? But mm -hmm. when you're bombing, it gets even more naked and more real. And it's so funny because it's when, when I bomb, I see the comedians laughing. They're not laughing because they are happy. They're friends. <laughs> Some of them maybe, but most comedians, they're laughing because they see your body slump and you're just naked and it's just looking at the crowd and it just, it realigns the whole energy and not in a good way, yeah. but it realigns the whole energy where you're like, okay, listen, now what are we going to do? Even you don't know. And the crowd doesn't know. And it's just one of those things that, and all the things that Chris Stefano was saying are all the reasons that people do bomb that are not necessarily about you. Like he did go first, and they didn't have the horn and the honking for him. So there was less energy and it was still light out. And there's always a million reasons that mm -hmm. make sense. And even though some of them are rationalization, sometimes, sometimes they're true. It's getting a laugh because it's releasing the tension of possible bombing. Yeah. Yeah. If people didn't bomb, then none of it would work. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> but most yeah. people don't know that, you know? So, you know, you, I read interviews with you or listen to you, and you really do talk about how still to this day you bomb more than any comedian at your level should. You say upwards yeah. of 60% 60, 60 of the time you'll do well, but 40% of the time you'll still a bomb. And what I find interesting, because there's a bit of a conflict, because, you know, you'll say, you know, every time you go out, you want to kill and you want to do a good job. You're not trying yeah. to bomb or push the, uh, uh, the audience away. But it does clearly that you don't want to compromise what you do just so you kill like you want to kill but right. you don't want to you know it's like you i think um another way of putting it it's like there there are comedians that start out and they just want the love or attention from the audience but i feel right. like as you go on you want the audience to appreciate you for who you actually are does, right does that seem does that seem correct for you yes yeah oh yeah i mean i mean i used to bomb 90 percent of the time i mean i was <laughs> i used to bomb all the time you know and but you're still trying to, you know, like the whole thing of comedy to me, this is just mm -hmm. the way I always looked at it. But it's like, I want the audience to laugh. But if it comes down to saying things that I don't think are funny to get a laugh, it's just not my thing. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just not into it. Like, I know there's little tricks that you can play, you know, including just nice things like smiling and, you know, being reassuring. And, and that does make them comfortable. But for whatever, whatever twisted stuff in my head, I'm just like, no, it's got to be this way, you know? Mm -hmm. And like I said, I grew up with the archetypes, you know, of what I thought it was. And that's just the way it's gone, you know? We'll be right back with more Colin Quinn. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. 
Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. And we're back with Colin Quinn. It, it, in interviews, you'll sometimes refer to your earlier self as being avant-garde-ish. Um, you yes. also described a time in the 90s when you were like looking for different ways to do stand-up. Can you describe yeah. that impulse and and where do you think that comes from? I mean, I would say, well, when I started, speaking of ways to bomb in comedy, when I started, I was influenced by the worst, um, the worst cadence-wise person you can be influenced by, James Joyce. Mm -hmm. I used to <laughs> fancy myself to be like this kind of Irish, you know, like intellectual, like stream of consciousness guy yeah. when I started. And... Once again, the comedians were no help because they kind of reinforced, like, that was good. The audience despised it because there's a practical side to it, too. If you don't pause in places where you want laughs, how are people supposed to laugh? They can't. There's yeah. no place for them to laugh. And they're thinking, he must not want us to laugh. We have to keep listening. So that was definitely a bad, that was my early avant-garde, mid-80s yeah. vibe. Then in the 90s, I started trying to do, like, um... Uh, I mean, I was doing like, like I remember one time I was just mentioning this the other day to Rich Voss because I've never really forgiven him for it. I was on stage and I did this. I said, I'm going to do comedy, but it's going to be sort of like free verse poem comedy. Mm -hmm. So I did this thing and it didn't do well. And then Voss, who I barely knew at the time, goes on and goes, I don't do poems. I do fucking jokes. And I was like, <laughs> this piece of shit. And I told him that the other day. He loves when I tell the story because I was so furious. I wanted to beat his brains in. Like, who is this idiot? And yeah. then, um, so I was, I was just experimenting with different, like one man show stuff, but also just trying to, trying to do different things just with comedy, because, you know, after a while comedy can, you know, it can be a, not necessarily a trick, mm. but there's a, there's an element of it where you can do it by rote. You, mm -hmm. you can learn the moves if you want if that's your preference and just do it that way. So, you know, yeah. just do it. Like I know this works. I know if I laugh here, I know if I look at them here, so it can be a little bit, you know, you, you want to, you know, you want to make it a challenge for yourself and also for, you know, comedy in general to try to make it, yeah. you know, somewhat, you know, interesting for, for the whole thing of it, you know? You said you sometimes tell a story where Jay Moore said that you're a dog whistle for comedians. What do you think comedians <laughs> he hear when they, they see you? I, I, first of all, I love that they do, but I don't know to this day from the day I started. I love it. I mean, it's not like I'm not loving it. I do love it. So I can't pretend I'm not into it. Of course I am, but I have no idea. And it started almost the, almost when I began, it was just ridiculous. I mean, I was literally, if it wasn't for comedians, I would never have gotten anywhere in this business. And that's a fact. Yeah. Because the audiences either hated me or could take me or leave me. The industry mm -hmm. could care less. They didn't know what I was, you know what I mean? Comedians were the ones that were like, yeah. this guy's funny. It was literally total comedians. And that's it. 
In in the special, Dan Soder says, for the past five years, comedians have been sucking our own dicks like we're <laughs> artists. This is just proof we're mentally ill people shouting at cars, which it reminded me of, uh, I interviewed Jerry Seinfeld years ago and I asked him if he thinks stand-up is an art. And he said yes, and there's there's no difference between the greatest paintings and jokes. But when, when there's two drink minimum and people are getting drunk to make the guy seem funnier, it, it doesn't necessarily look that way. Um, right, right. How, how, do you, how, how do you feel about the dynamic? I mean, I love the fact that that was a great line by Dan Soda. Yeah. And I, you know, I hadn't heard anyone's act, of course, because I wasn't, you know, we're not working. So when he said that, I was laughing so hard <laughs> because, you know, sometimes it gets a little bit too, you know, modern day philosopher, mm-hmm. you know, kind of comedy. And it's like, all right, you know, come on. And uh, yeah, but that's like you say, that's what's great about the audience is the great humbler, which is like, Sometimes you'll be on something you think is important and the crowd will be like, oh, God, come on. I mean, yeah. it is an art and it is mentally ill people yelling <laughs> in cars. I mean, that's what's good about stand up is that we're like, I feel like we're close to any average person in that, you know, there's something off. There's mm-hmm. something awkward about us that's just, you don't really, you're not cool. I feel like cool. I always tell people, cool is the en- enemy of comedy, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, there's a few comedians that have pulled it off, but for the most part, you're not in. And that's what makes you funny. You're outside the window staring at it with everybody else, you know? I, yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more because you mentioned a little bit the sort of new generation of comedy fans. Uh, and, you know, and it seems like part of you likes comedy nerds being around, but it, they see comedy as cooler than maybe you see it. But also, they they might listen more than previous comedy audiences. How, how do you feel about these these generation of these comedy nerds? Yeah, I love I love them because they listen more. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, I mean, anybody that listens to comedy, I I love it. Yeah, I don't think they see it as cooler. If they do, they should stop right now. <laughs> but I mean, um, yeah, comedy is not cool. Oh, I hate when it's cool. You yeah, know, yeah. it's the I, it ruins comedy to me. But because it's, it's, I mean, it's the oldest principle in the world. It's like, you know, you know, trying to go talk to a girl and slipping on the banana pit, whatever, mm. you know what I mean? Like, it's for people that want to be cool, then you fall apart and go, oh, yeah, I mm-hmm. forgot I'm a loser. I mean, that's the essence of comedy in some way. I mean, that's why Rodney Dangerfield was so funny mm-hmm. at his core, because he came up there and he, even though it was like, ah, oh, look at this guy, he don't get no respect. It's like, no, no. You don't get no respect either. That's yeah. what's so funny about him. None of us get respect. That's why he's funny. Yeah, you mentioned seriously, or even the Rodney Dangerfield thing. I think is is, I think this there's comedy is going through a certain growing period right this moment of knowing what to do when people respect it. Like I think there's like this double edged sword that respect brings, which is like. Like, clearly, obviously, the job is making people laugh. But I think, like, a comedian like you aspires to more from giving more of yourself to the audience, either teaching them something or sharing your perspective. And and more respect allows you to do that. The problem is also more going, what often goes hand-to-hand with more respect, is people caring about how comedians talk about certain issues. I, I, I want, I want, hoping you could help sort this out. Like, I feel like this is... It's like a, a puzzle that these things go, they're, they're both happening at the same time. And, and I feel like for comedy to move forward, we need to figure out how to weigh where we can get both the good and not necessarily the bad of, or maybe comedians just have to accept that they're seen as philosophers or they're not. I don't know. It's sort of, I, I see it as so tangled. Where, where are you with it at, at this point? Well, I mean, I might... My opinion is like, you know, they say doctors first do no harm. Mm-hmm. Like comedians first get a laugh because yeah. if you're up there and you're doing philo- and you're philosophizing, you may be a great philosophizer. You may be a brilliant, you may have the solution, the keys to the universe. But if you're not getting laughs, you shouldn't say you're a comedian because the comedians mm-hmm. by definition is getting evoking laughter. And so I feel like some people could hide under the banner of, I freaked the audience out and I made them think. And it's like, that's fine. That's not necessarily comedy. It can be part of comedy if you're getting laughs. But so I feel like, you know, I don't like when people, I don't like the two extremes of people that just 
Mm. Try to get laughs, lowest common denominator. And I don't like the people that try to hide behind the idea that they that they're blowing the bourgeoisie middle class <laughs> minds with their comedy, but they're not really funny. You can't change the way anybody's gonna do their thing, you know. I feel like all comedy, if it's original and it's what you're interested in saying, then it's mm -hmm. great. But like I've had people come up to me after my shows and go, that was really funny. I didn't agree with that one part. And it's like, okay, but that's not really relevant to what <laughs> I'm doing. You don't have to agree with me. You have to laugh and think it was clever or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. worth your money, worth your time to hear it. So it's like, I'm not trying to get agreement. Mm. You know, like they say, clapter. I mean, nothing's more annoying than clapter, in my opinion, because it's not laughs, you know? So it's like, what does that even mean? You know? Yeah. Like that's, it's, that's it's, a rally, you know? Yeah. You had a Trump section in in your last special, but but outside of you specifically, obviously, um, there's been so many jokes about Donald Trump. The most jokes about any president, I have to imagine, just because of the mix of social media and sure. how where comedy went. You know what do you, what did you learn from this period in terms of comedy and politics? What should comedy learn from this period going forward? Assuming you know he leaves office as he seemingly right. should. Yeah, he's about to. I mean, it looks like it's happening, but who knows? Yeah. It, it, yeah. <laughs> he's definitely got some warlike qualities to him. Yeah. Um, but um, I mean, obviously, Trump was beaten to the ground the first year. People were like, oh, stuff. You know what I mean? And I mean, I even felt weird putting him in my show because I'm like, but it was about Red State, Blue State. You couldn't, yeah. he was the elephant in the room. But I mean, I still felt like it was hacky by that point to even bring him up. You can't ignore somebody yeah. like this. But it's been overkill. First of all, that satire does not influence the average person hmm. to change how they feel, right? People didn't change. People didn't flip on their opinion of Trump because of, uh, you know, Colbert Report or something. Yeah. Not even Colbert Report anymore, but, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm saying people don't change their opinion. But also the fact that, um, that in general, speaking like – because our country is so lenient, like speaking truth to power, for example, mm -hmm. when people are like, I speak against Trump and I don't care. It's like, okay, it's not edgy in show business to speak against Trump. Let's not act like that's a thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not going to sabotage your career. Okay. It's good to do it. But don't act like it's taking a chance. You know what I mean? Except when Jim Gaffigan did it, because Jim yes. Gaffigan's fans are, you know what I mean? A lot of them are probably Trump people. So, you know, there were exceptions, but I mean, uh, but in general, it's kind of like it's not as effective when you can say anything. It's not like making fun of Vladimir Putin, you mm -hmm. know, which is a credit to our country. But I'm saying the imaginary transgression of speaking truth to power can be a little bit, you know, fake sometimes. You know, since I, I, I have this opportunity to talk to you, I want to ask you about Tough Crowd, which uh, was really seminal for me the, when it was airing on Comedy Central. And um, I just wondered if you can think of one or two tough crowd memories that you feel like typifies the show and, and what was special about it. Well, here's, I'll give you a couple of moments that typify it for me. One was we did one episode where Jim Norton, he started to put his hand, his thumb and his finger under his chin when he would say something that he thought was intelligent. <laughs> so I got them to cut together five instances of Jim putting his hand under his chin and saying something that he thought was intelligent. And then we just ran them together. And then the rest of the show, it started out talking about whatever was in the news was just us talking about what kind of an idiot would like that you're modeling some 1930s comedy where an intelligent guy would hold his hand to his chin and just ripped him to shreds for no reason. And that part of the beauty of the show was you'd be in the middle. I mean, it would happen to me. I was the host. And in the middle of the show, they would just start attacking me because I have deer legs, apparently, according to them, very thin legs, or like whatever I was wearing. And they would just go, you think you're this and you're not. And it would just be like a personal attack on me. You know, you get sidetracked from an important political discussion to just destroy you. <laughs> and it was so funny. Like that that was my favorite thing about the show. Unless it was me, then I didn't like yeah. it, but it would still, you have to take it, you know. But when suddenly we'd be in the middle of talking about something that was earth-shatteringly consequential, and then it was just sidetracked, it was just attacking one person, 
and everybody just kill them for two minutes and then back to something else. They just got punched with a flurry of punches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how, how you talk about Tough Crowd um, and as a so- showcase for these comedians who, who, who care about so much, I, it made me think about the voiceover for um, the, the HBO special where, where you say, if this, ends, this, if this ends up being your last hurrah, you say, yeah. at least I left with a bunch of people that are ungrateful, self-centered know-it-alls like me. Yeah. Um, is, is that true? Another Tough Crowd episode, when something happened to me in the middle of the show where I went home one night and I just, I fell on the ground and I couldn't get up and there was something wrong with me. And literally the next day I managed to call into the show and said, um, uh, something's wrong with me. Don't, I'm not going to the hospital yet, but just keep in touch. So we had to cancel the show. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the next day I was better. I went on the next day and I said, uh, we had to cancel yesterday. It was something happened to me. We don't know what it was. It was some kind of neurological. I don't know what it was. And none of you, this is the monologue. I go, none of you called me. <laughs> I put you on this show, even just for your own self-interest. I think you'd be a little better than this just out of your own self-interest, but you're so narcissistic. You just were like, Oh, the show's canceled. I'm not doing it today. What am I going to do today? And none of you called me and you knew something was wrong that I canceled the show at the last minute and I was, something was wrong with me. And then they all started to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. Just because you love somebody doesn't mean they love you back. Just know that. <laughs> so that sound means it's time for our final segment. It's oh. the laugh. It's the laughing round. It, it, it's like a lightning round, but be, because it's comedy, I, I call it the, the laughing round. Uh, so like a lightning round, it's shorter questions. Uh, you could pass, um, you know, same shit. Uh, do you have a favorite joke joke, like a street joke? Um, I have a lot of, a lot of favorite jokes, but I'll tell you one. I mean, I have Mm -hmm. a, I could, you're asking the wrong guy. I have so many (laughs) jokes I love, but one of them is this one. Ready? So these two guys are putting a cell in prison together. And one guy goes to the other guy. How long are you in for? And he goes, I'm in for 25 years. And the other guy goes, well, I'm in for 30, so you better take the bed near the door since you're getting out first. (laughs) I like that joke. It's a smaller punchline than a lot of joke jokes have. Yeah, I know. That's what I like. I like those those subtle ones. (laughs) Um. Do you have a joke uh, from another comedian that you wish you could steal? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's so many. Uh, well, John Mulaney did the other night that joke. He did that joke about going past the guy, and the guy goes, I'm uptown. Do you ever hear that joke? It was a real story that happened to him. He's walking, and a guy's walking by on the phone, mm. cell phone, and he goes, and they're downtown. And the guy looks, some stranger walking by, goes to whoever's talking on the phone like, yeah, I'm still uptown. And then looks at John Mulaney oh, yeah. and winks at him. And, winks at him. <laughs> and I was like, that's a great thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. You really, I just love that kind of stuff, you know? Um, uh, considering your, your last book where you, um, where you ended up roasting all the states, what is the easiest state to make fun of and what is the hardest state to make fun of? Um, well, the easiest is New York and California too, because... The ego states are New York, Texas, and California. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that just think we're the greatest places. Nobody, you know what I mean? And the hardest one is Florida because everyone attacks it. Florida and New Jersey because people are so used to attacking it that you have to. It's like, like we're talking about the Trump jokes. Yeah. You have to come from a different angle because mm. everyone sort of knows what's coming. It's interesting when I hear you talk about Saturday Night Live because you'll talk about pretty fondly, but you'll talk about how you probably weren't the best fit for Weekend Update. But what is your sort of favorite SNL memory? What is the thing you think about? And you're like, this was good. This was a nice time. Well, ironically, one of my favorite SNL memories was when I was doing Weekend Update. And I wasn't, like you said, it wasn't, that wasn't the time in SNL that I loved. Mm-hmm. It was before that, you know? And when I was a writer and doing little stuff on Opet, it was my, I loved it, you know? But one time I was on there and Bill Murray came on. Mm-hmm. And he came on Update to do a little update piece. And, you know, I was like Bill Murray. I knew him from the movies. I forgot when I was a teenager and SNL first came on, 
how important Bill Murray's vibe. Nobody had that that yeah. angle or that energy or whatever it was that he did. And he started doing this thing on updates that was so from that time. Hmm. And I I was I mean, I almost got high of just watching this guy. And I was like, oh yeah, that's this guy that doesn't care or whatever it was that he did. And it did on the air and it wasn't the same on the air. It didn't even do as well on the air, but in dress rehearsal, just watching him be Bill Murray. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm sitting next to this guy. When I watched him on TV, I never saw a person do that kind of humor before when he, he was doing that ironic, like he would do these characters like um, he did a, a critic that was like Rex Reed, like a movie critic. Mm-hmm. And he was going, now listen, Woody, 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 to Woody Allen, get out of here. I love you, but get out of here. I mean it. And he would do this. And then he would do the guy on the cruise ship, the singer. Mm-hmm. Nobody did that before. Yeah. Nobody made fun of the lounge act till he did it. Nobody did. Yeah. You know? And so just being there and watching him do whatever his irreverent thing was, that was a big thing for me, you know? I, I, I've read that the book, The Confederacy of Dunces, was, is a big influence on you, and you'll you'll keep on rereading it, you'll reread passages. Are, is there a section that you, like, think of as, the, as like, the touchstone? Is there a, a sentence? Is there something that you're, like, you carry around like a, like a mantra? I mean, there's so many moments, but, I mean, off the top of my head is when he writes back to Myrna Minkoff, if you know the book, mm-hmm. where she writes Miss Leather, he goes, beloved Myrna, do you seriously think I'm interested in your tawdry account, your tawdry encounters with such subhumans as folk singers? <laughs> folk singers, in the future, please confine yourself to issues and such. Thereby, you will at least avoid obscenity or an offense. <laughs> but I mean, every mo- every one of his responses like that. First of all, the fact that he presumes that she's trying to avoid obscenity and offense. I read that book all the time because I've been reading it for 40 years because every time I read it, I laugh out loud. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about one other jokes of yours that I, 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 it might be my favorite line you've said, or at least recently, which is you're um, in New York story. You're talking about the black kids you went to high school with and their insults. And the joke is he lives in the back of a hardware store, comes to school smelling like cut keys. Yeah. Can you tell me about the joke? Where to go? It's so funny. And just the words are just, Smelling like cut keys is like just, it's poetry. And guess what? Well, I'd say thank you, but guess what? It's the one joke that I didn't, it was actually said to me by a kid I knew, this black kid who was telling me about some kids. He was a, a paraprofessional. And he goes, he goes, I got these kids, we're talking comments like 12 years ago, this kid Mark. And he goes, I got these kids in my class that are so funny. He goes, one of the kids goes to the other one the other day. Look at you. You live in the back of the hallway store. Come to school smelling like cut keys. So not only didn't I say it, it's from him, but he he heard it and knew it was gold and said it to me. And some kid in real life said it to his friend. Yeah, yeah. You're right. It's believe me, it's I wish, I wish. <laughs> but isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Uh, so this will be the last one. And I think it's a perfect one for you. So do you have uh, a joke that you thought of that you were like, that really stands out? Because I feel like you're going to have a lot of these. A joke that you were like, this is really funny. You've tried on stage a lot of times. You kept on thinking it's really funny, but the audience would never laugh at it. But you're going to go to your grave being like, this joke was funny. The audiences were wrong. Um, I mean, when I start my first, one of my first jokes, I mean, was... Danger is my middle name, folks. Actually, it's my confirmation name. <laughs> that was my one of my first jokes. Um, I never got a laugh. But I used to have a bunch of stuff like that, you know, just obscure, like, stuff about saints. I used to have a routine about the saints where, you know, they'd go to DeSales. Mm-hmm. Since so many saints came out of a CC and DeSales, they'd be recruiting and just all this stuff about cheating and using cortisone cream to cure lepers. And I used to have this, I have so much obscure stuff that I just think is like, you know, gold. I know I feel that way. I know it's, it's uh, delusions of grandeur because when I'm trying to throw out old notes and stuff, I never throw them out. I'm always <laughs> like, no, this is going to work someday. I got to keep this because this, I just need to rewrite this. And it's, it's insane. I think it's yeah. all gold. I'm like, oh, we'll throw that out. 
that is a perfect way of ending it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Colin Quinn and Friends, a parking lot show, on HBO Max. You can watch Colin's last three stand-up specials on Netflix. Buy Overstated wherever you buy books. Follow Colin on social media at IamColinQuinn. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Hannah Rosen, and Camila Salazar. Gotham Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and write the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox. You can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Hannibal Burris. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.